in crisis, but with an incredible opportunity, not just to build back to where we were before, but better, stronger, more resilient. Underlying message here is the, the energy industry is, is an important component to how we move to this phase of, of economic recovery. Now, understandably, nations have poured billions into shoring up health services, but the recovery, now that lockdowns are being lifted, needs to take into consideration our other global emergency, climate change. So there's a big opportunity to retrofit buildings and homes across this country, to clean up our transportation sector with electric vehicles, to clean up our electricity system with wind and solar. In the near term, we have to think of not only what are our goals, but how do we address the barriers to make sure we're making equitable investments so that we can actually reach those goals together. Clean energy is no longer a quaint little sector in the broader U.S. economy. It is, or at least it was, a rapidly growing industry, with more Americans working in clean energy in 2018 than school teachers in the country. Research shows that these jobs exist in all but two counties in the U.S. Like other industries, however, the once booming sector has taken a major hit during the COVID-19 pandemic, resulting in hundreds of thousands of job losses. What will it take to get these jobs back? And not just that, is it possible to grow the clean energy sector beyond where it was before and put this industry at the center of a U.S. economic recovery? I speak to an economist and three clean energy business leaders to learn how the clean energy sector has been affected by COVID and what it will take to reboot the industry moving forward. This is Political Climate, an energy and environmental podcast presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. And I am Julia Piper, your host, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. This is the third episode in our Relief, Rescue, Rebuild series, supported by the think tank Third Way. You can learn more about Third Way's climate and energy work via thirdway.org. Using government stimulus spending to accelerate decarbonization is not a new idea. Research conducted by Johns Hopkins University found that 15% of stimulus spending by G20 countries during the 2009 recession was focused on reducing emissions while supporting economic growth. In the U.S., approximately 12% of stimulus spending included in large stimulus bills went to low-carbon technologies and programs in the wake of the 2009 market crash. According to ongoing Johns Hopkins research, So far, just 7% of stimulus spending in G20 economies in response to COVID-19 has been targeted at low-carbon solutions. And the majority of that is coming from Europe. In the U.S., climate and clean energy stakeholders are still hoping, wishing, and waiting for a green recovery to take shape. Democrats have attempted to get clean energy measures, such as renewable energy tax credits, included in past stimulus bills, but hit a roadblock. And negotiations remain at a standstill as Democrats and Republicans remain stalled on passing any additional coronavirus relief, 
even as existing benefits run out. As I record this in late September, bipartisan clean energy legislation is advancing in both the House and Senate. But prospects remain uncertain as Republicans focus their efforts on nominating a new Supreme Court justice following the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Furthermore, the legislation teed up for a vote falls short of a green economic stimulus, which would be a more comprehensive type of package. And so, many clean energy business owners and employees are watching to see what Congress will do next, as many companies struggle to stay afloat. To better understand what rebuilding the clean energy industry will really take, I got on the line with Ellen Hughes Cromwick, former chief economist for the Obama administration's Department of Commerce. She's also the former chief global economist at Ford Motor Company, and currently a senior resident fellow at Third Way, where she works on moving the national debate forward on the clean energy transition. After my conversation with Ellen, you'll hear directly from three business leaders in three different states. A woman-owned sustainability consultancy in Orlando, Florida, a solar project developer and manufacturer in Atlanta, Georgia, and a residential geothermal drilling and installation company in Pennsylvania. We go beyond the stats and talking points to put some voices and names to the clean energy sector and the challenges it's facing. But first, here's Ellen. So we are talking about clean energy in this episode, and that's kind of a big term, right? It kind of gets labeled as this small, quaint little industry with environmental aims, but really it's one of the fastest growing industries in the United States right now, and indeed the world, with businesses located in literally every U.S. state. Just so we know, so our audience has a real grasp of this, what is clean energy in your mind when we think about growing that sector? Yes, there are so many elements to the clean energy sector, not only solar, but including battery storage. We, as a nation, have made great strides in terms of improvements on battery storage. And as you know, that's going to be absolutely critical as we transition to renewables on the grid. Wind is, of course, another great a renewable sector that will be growing substantially in the years ahead. In clean energy, I would also include energy efficiency methods. There are so many out there, and they do contribute to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, In there, I would include any efficiencies in terms of the electric grid operation upgrades there. Electric hybrid and hydrogen vehicles are also an important uh, clean energy sector, as well as different uh, aspects of energy conservation for both goods and services, biomass, um, and also energy um, savings that we get from better efficiencies on appliances, geothermal, hydroelectric power, and of course, advanced nuclear power as well. Would you put carbon capture sequestration in that bucket as well? There's so many I didn't mention, but carbon capture will be absolutely critical. I wanted to get those terms out there because we're talking about a green recovery or a clean recovery, and I think it's helpful to remind people of just what all could be in that toolkit. Uh, And of course, there are differing views on what should be included, but I wanted to just get that out there. So 
let's dig in. You have you recently conducted at Third Way a survey of roughly 200 clean energy industry members. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what you tried to achieve there and the top line result? Yes, we did conduct a clean energy survey of all these different sectors uh, in the kind of late June through July timeframe. And one of the reasons we wanted to conduct this survey was that we had very little information about how was the health crisis from COVID and then following that, the economic recession, how were those developments affecting clean energy business sectors? And we did, we got an amazing response. We had 250 respondents from all these different uh, parts of clean energy uh, in terms of their activities. And just to kick it off, we did find almost 80% responded that they were either um, very negatively impacted or moderately negatively impacted by uh, the onset of COVID. And of course, we read about all of these businesses that were, you know, basically had to shutter. Uh, but the fact that we had just such a an, um, an incredible response, unfortunately, very negative really was a cause for concern as we looked at the other results in the survey. Yeah, so I think there's something like 500,000 clean energy workers who remain jobless right now. That number obviously fluctuates a little bit, but I know it was up even higher than that as the lockdowns were in full force earlier this year. And it's still an open question as to how you know quickly these industries, these companies will rebound and really what the growth trajectory will then be going forward. So with that context, I guess, uh, what were some of the top concerns you heard from those business leaders? What were they saying that I guess they wanted to see change? Yes. And, you know, Julia, you're absolutely right on the workforce in clean energy. As you know, last year in 2019, there were well over 3 million jobs in these different clean energy sectors. This is a very large industry and it's growing at a rate of about 10%. If you look at the job gains from 2015 to 20. 19. A lot of people don't realize how big this industry has gotten. And when we looked at the results from the questions that we asked uh, these businesses, we found that about 50% of them responded that they took advantage of the Paycheck Protection Program that was part of the CARES Act introduced and passed into law early on in the health crisis. And that did provide them with some very vital support so that they didn't have to immediately cut worker hours or lay off workers or uh, reduce uh, worker salaries. So the first kind of key takeaway was how much these clean energy businesses went out and did um, receive federal assistance. So that federal assistance was absolutely critical. 
at the same time as we ask them, well, you know, if federal assistance runs out, what can you do? What are your next steps? And some of them said, you know, we're going to have to begin to unfortunately trim their worker hours or cut back on the number of workers that they employed. And uh, quite a number of them also said that they probably are going to see, you know, customer orders uh, either get delayed or postponed or even canceled. So there's a lot of, uh, unfortunately, adverse consequences associated with the health crisis. And, you know, from the standpoint of uh, looking out in the future, we want to make sure that we provide relief because these are the businesses that will grow jobs over time, given how big the sector is. Are these jobs that really do grow everywhere or is it accurate to for critics to say that this is just an agenda from maybe you know, more liberal states where the clean energy economy is a little more entrenched? Or does the data show that, no, these jobs are a little more widespread? What's the what's the reality right now with that? Well, we didn't ask them any questions around where these jobs are located, but we know from the U.S. Energy Employment Report that is an annual assessment of clean energy jobs that they're all over the place. I mean, there, there are a lot of clean energy positions in Texas, uh, in the Plain States, uh, in the South. Uh, there's a major effort, as you know, to expand renewables on the grid in just about any state that we look at. And I think uh, that annual survey shows quite clearly that these are widespread across all different regions of the country. And because of that, it's in because of the fact that it's just uh, such a growing industry, it's going to be important for policymakers to look at how can we make sure that those positions continue to grow over time. It will add to the economic growth and development in all of these states, frankly, as we take this transition forward to decarbonize our economy. A little anecdote is that, you know, here uh, in California, I'm in Los Angeles and a couple hours up the road is Kern County, which is sort of the oil hub of the state. But even there, clean energy jobs, renewable energy jobs, in fact, are the number two sector in terms of employment, actually beating out the agricultural sector in recent years. So amazing to see how even in a place that has historically been known for its oil industry, renewable energy jobs are right on its heels. So you really can you know, see this uh, economy, this clean energy economy growing everywhere. I want to get more into the policies and how to support this industry going forward. I know that is a major focus for Democrats, but also perhaps some local uh, politicians across the political spectrum. When you spoke to these industry leaders, what were their main policy uh, recommendations or requests? I know there were three main buckets that you found. Could you walk me through those? Yes, we asked the survey respondents if they could name three policy solutions, whether they are solutions at the federal, state, or local government 
level that would be most helpful for recovery and long-term expansion. And we had almost 45% of the respondents. So again, this is on a base of over 200 business respondents. Almost 45% said new tax credits would be extremely helpful. Tax credits that could turn into cash grants would also be very helpful. And they mentioned public infrastructure investment. Because as you know, as we transition to a clean energy economy, much of what we have to grow is really the infrastructure, whether it's the grid or building new solar farms or new wind turbine facilities. That infrastructure development was at uh, the top three of the policy solutions that the business respondents mentioned. Um, I will say, too, that we had almost 30% mentioned low interest loans. So low cost loans are really helpful. In other words, they're not looking for a handout. A lot of businesses, if they could get low interest loans, they would be able to expand their business and really recover from this COVID related economic downturn. And I understand there's also a point around research and development and startups. Could you articulate that? Yes, we had several of the respondents talk about how research and development grants would be critical for them to expand and do the kind of work to develop their clean energy technologies. So R&D is is vital because, as you know, a lot of times the capital markets will not take the risk to invest in startups and, and research and development. They'll just basically stand back and say, you know, I'm going to leave that to somebody else. And as an economist, we, you know, economics really says, look, there's so many cases where research and development has a benefit for society as a whole. And therefore, there's a role for government to intervene and offer up support for research and development. That's frankly how we ended up with the Internet, was government support for the research and development. And this is really vital for a lot of uh, companies working in battery technology. You know, we've got to really have here in the U.S., startups that can expand and grow with innovation on the battery. We need to get abundant materials for battery cells. And in doing that, we'll be able to get a head start in growing electric vehicles in the country. Just to add a little color here, I know there are some quotes that you pulled from respondents. One of them addressing this uh, R&D point is, quote, we focus on innovation through collaboration with early stage startups to help them grow into change agents. Direct government investment in these startups, like the Air Force SBIR initiatives, would be the best tool in accelerating change, accelerating clean tech into place. So that's just one voice coming out of your survey. Are there some other quotes like that that stood out to you, hearing directly now from industry members? Yes, we did have one quote, and I, I, will, I just want to say at the start of this, 
we were absolutely shocked at how many responses we received to an open-ended question about, you know, what kind of policies do you think would be important? And do you think it's important to have policies to support our effort to mitigate climate risks? And, you know, we had, uh, I think about 90% of 170 comments basically said, absolutely, we need this kind of policy. This is absolutely just so vital. One of my favorites is, you know, hey, yes, we need to spur investment in renewable energy and carbon sequestration strategies. Uh, we also had a lot of respondents around electric vehicles, you know, things that would help grow our underlying market, like EV mandates or incentives or a carbon price, you know, indirect but necessary support. Hey, how about requiring EV manufacturers to share data with their customers and utilities in real time so that we can now begin to see how that data will help us get ever more efficient in terms of using energy and transitioning to clean energy. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess, what would you say to critics who say, look, we supported the clean energy sector. It's had, uh, say, wind and solar, for instance, have had uh, the production tax credit and the investment tax credit for several years. Those are now scheduled to phase down. We're currently uh, seeing that happen. Uh, so critics might say they had sufficient support. Now is time to end those kinds of subsidies, which I know is a top request from the industry. So what will be the pushback against that and the reason to continue government spending, particularly now mid-COVID, when, of course, budgets are tight, but there is a strategy that's needed to rebuild? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Julia. And some of what came through in the comments that we received really hit the nail on the head that, yes, we've seen on the margin, the incremental cost come down and become very competitive with older fossil fuel related technologies. But now what we need to do is take these industries to scale. And by that, I mean to much higher volume, much bigger output than what we've seen so far. And the reason why this is kind of the tipping point, trigger point to get to that higher volume, higher scale, is that precisely because we've now gotten down to very competitive cost for the incremental cost in moving to clean energy. So I'll give you an example. Um, if you, if we went to Tesla today and said, gee, you know, could you give us an idea of on the margin, how much does it cost to produce this vehicle? What we would probably find is that that vehicle is really just as competitive now today with a gasoline powered vehicle. What is holding back potentially some of the businesses to transition to electric vehicles is they have to spend the fixed capital cost to retool plants so that they can make electric vehicles. So there's this fixed capital cost that a lot of the businesses in our survey really are alluding to that if they can get some help with that 
fixed capital costs to do the transition, now we're opening up the gateway for a complete movement or transformation to the newer clean energy technology. And I suspect that that's kind of the hurdle it, that really government can help nudge forward to eliminate that, you know, higher engineering, higher capital fixed cost that companies are grappling with. What do you think is the potential to stimulate the U.S. economy by stimulating the clean energy sector? I know that's a big open question. Speaking of open questions, uh, I know it's probably hard to put any numbers around without some deep uh, analysis. But say, you know, we know that there's 500,000 people that lost their jobs recently because of COVID. How much of that could we get back? How much could there could the growth be with more intentional policies around clean energy? Just to put some framing on what the opportunity is here for the country. Well, I first come back to that statistic. We know that in the last four or four uh, years that clean energy jobs have grown, you know, by about ten and a half percent. So it's one of the highest growth sectors in the entire economy. And we know that there is an increasing push to make transparent what the climate risks are in different sectors of the economy. Once we know where those risks are, we can see that a lot of people, uh, both consumers and businesses are moving toward clean energy sectors and will want to either be working in a clean energy sector or they're going to make better choices about the kinds of clean energy goods and services that they buy, that they'll be voting with their feet, so to speak. And as that happens, we will see even, I think, stronger growth in these clean energy sectors because we'll all be looking at, gee, it costs more because there's more climate risk associated with certain types of goods and services produced in the economy. So we want to really move to the sectors that are, you know, really mitigating those climate risks. So it's a, you know, it's kind of a qualitative answer that I've, I've provided, but it really does make a difference when we start to recognize in a transparent way certain sectors that do offer way more climate risk. And that's the one thing that we know we have to reduce over time. Yeah, I think it's hard to know exactly yeah, what the numbers would be. People are trying to put some numbers out there by doing the analysis. I think your answer helps shed light on that. To throw some numbers out there, though, I know that E2 Environmental Entrepreneurs and E4 The Future released a report recently that proposed uh, investing $99 billion in a clean energy stimulus. And they said, according to their analysis, that that would create 860,000 full-time direct and indirect jobs in the clean energy sector for at least five years. So that is one number that's out there. And again, it all depends on what policies, you know, the policymakers pick and decide to put in place. But uh, that's one orienting figure there. 
So to put in the current political context, I know that Senate Democrats have introduced legislation that would actually make this kind of green stimulus a reality. There's also traction in the House on this. What are you seeing from your vantage point in Washington, D.C. around the reality of actually passing some kind of clean energy uh, you know, reboot? Well, as you know, there is a clean energy and uh, uh, energy package that is hopefully coming up for a vote. Uh, this week. And I know there's a lot of support for different elements, including research and development and demonstration projects. The demonstration projects are a critical piece because they allow firms to begin to see how they can scale up and uh, really, really make a bigger impact in terms of this transition to clean energy. So we have certain uh, components of that uh, package that are going to be absolutely critical to support carbon capture and storage and also research on batteries. Because as you know, the battery is going to be critical for not just electric vehicles and electrified transportation, but it will be critical for battery storage on the grid. And so we've got a major effort underway that will significantly expand the capabilities of our uh, grid to decarbonize over time. So I believe the bill you're referring to there in the Senate is a bipartisan bill introduced by Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia. And it includes, as you noted, 17 demonstration projects. Those are for advanced nuclear, carbon capture, long duration storage, geothermal, and I believe some other technologies. And if passed, the reporting says that this would be the first comprehensive federal energy bill to pass since 2007. But this is not even the most comprehensive bill that there could be. There have been calls from Democratic lawmakers to pass an even bigger kind of energy bill, a stimulus that includes, say, jobs programs and other kinds of mandates. Um, so just to create some distinction there in the scope of things that we're talking about, there's this energy package before the Senate, which could have a House version be reconciled with it, perhaps even this year. And then there's this broader discussion about could there be room for something bigger, something more. So, you know, on that note, do you think that a bigger package will be needed beyond targeted clean energy policies like demonstration projects, but actually something much larger and a more strategic shift. Uh, people have been calling for decades really for a national energy strategy in the United States. Do you think something like that could happen now amid these multiple demands for both addressing climate change, ensuring energy, you know, security, things like that? Do you anticipate that on the horizon or do you think it's just as effective to keep chipping away at these targeted solutions and, and take those wins as they come? Uh, or is there just really a need for more? What do you think? Well, Julia, we'll take any win we can get. So the Senate bill this week, I think, will be really important. But you highlight, I think, an important priority for all of us interested in this issue of how important it is for us to reduce climate risks and transition to a clean energy economy. We absolutely need a more comprehensive approach. Look at our competition, both in Europe and China. They have put together strategies and support for businesses in the clean energy sector in a much more proactive way. And I do think having read a few times now the Biden 
Harris climate plan, that that is a very comprehensive strategic approach, not only decarbonizing the electric uh, grid by 2035, but ensuring that we move much more proactively in all sectors of the economy, all the way from the beginning of research and development to startups, entrepreneurs, to then taking these businesses to scale and growing our manufacturing sectors. You know, we need to have battery cell manufacturing facilities in the U.S. We need to have job growth in those sectors, and we need to support all types of electrified transportation, as well as efforts to expand public transit, which is absolutely critical in a clean energy economy. So yeah, we need, we need all of the above, and it would be so much more efficient if we use the science to develop that strategy, which is really underpinning what the Biden climate plan has laid out. So I do, I do urge all of your listeners to you know, take a little bit of time and read how comprehensive that plan is and strategic. I think it's a way to kind of give us a roadmap for how to build this out over the next several years. I guess before we sign off here, do you have any final thoughts on what we should be thinking about from lessons learned in the Obama administration during the last financial uh, crisis that we could take with us going forward? Were there any things that you think that people should keep in mind from that experience? Yeah, you know, there are a couple that I'd like to mention, Julia. One is, in particular, the way that the Obama administration really reached out and established advanced manufacturing institutes across the country. And many of those institutes are really trying to, you know, develop clean energy uh, manufacturing activities that would also add significantly to our workforce. I do think that, you know, those types of programs are really important in terms of growing uh, clean energy sectors here in the U.S. The Department of Commerce also spearheaded a lot of efforts to uh, support investment in clean energy. And, um, you know, that's going to be an important recipe going forward. We can't wait any longer, and we certainly don't want to get consistently hit with climate shocks over time. We recognize the science around climate change. And now we have to really take hold and address it. And in doing so, we'll be able to grow the economy. I think it's a, you know, a little, little bit of a falsehood that if we address climate change, we're going to lose economic growth. It's not the case. And our survey really highlighted that there's a lot of growth to be had with a few policy nudges we will get there and have much more momentum in that direction than we have today. And so I, I guess I would just leave with a, with a bit of an optimistic note there. By the way, we're, we're conducting a second clean energy survey coming up in October and taking the pulse of these businesses once more with some special questions that I think will give us some additional insights. 
Excellent. Well, I know that this uh, large and hopefully growing industry will be looking to see what happens in D.C. and in their states as well. That's another important area we didn't touch on, but uh Clean energy policy at the state level is critical as well, and we'll see if lawmakers will come together on that or if we'll see some more gridlock. Only time will tell. Ellen, thank you so much for breaking this down for us. Thank you, Julia. It was a pleasure. Appreciate it. What's it like to be a clean energy business owner in America these days? Well, with the help of the Clean Energy Business Network, I called some up to find out. Here are perspectives from Florida, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. My name is Alexis Stone. I'm president of EcoPreserve. EcoPreserve is a sustainability consulting company based in Orlando, Florida, with offices in a couple of other places. We are a female-owned business. We focus on improving the sustainability and efficiency of typically local government facilities. We work a lot with large entities like convention centers and airports, uh, campuses, hospitals. So how has COVID-19 affected your business? It's been really hard on us because we work with the government and because we work with airports and convention centers and all of the industry in Orlando related to tourism has basically collapsed. So we've had contracts that have been canceled or put on hold and that piece of it was was really scary for all of us. I've got a staff of about 20 people and you know the most important thing was keeping everybody on the payroll. So it, it has been difficult. Did you were you able to take advantage of any government support programs or did you end up taking advantage of any government support programs to get through this time? We did. We applied for, I think we were first in line for the payroll protection program, and we did get the funds, and that was a lifeline for us. What would you like to see government leaders do now to support your business? We'd like to see the government maintain the environmental regulations that are in place and continue to support energy efficiency and a low-carbon environment. Right now, with the pandemic, there is little focus on maintaining sustainability. One of the areas that we focus on typically is waste and recycling. And um, that area is all but ignored right now. And and the problem is just getting worse. Landfills are, are filling up. And that leads to so many other issues that people don't typically think about. And one thing that was interesting for me is we do greenhouse gas studies, right? So we did a measurement for a local government to see where their carbon emissions were coming from. I was surprised to find out that 37% of their carbon emissions were coming from their landfill. So I don't think people generally recognize how poisonous landfills are, not only from leaching into the soil, but from emissions, Yeah, I feel like people were seeing the clearer skies in the immediate aftermath of the lockdowns, you know, local pollution did decline, but we're missing that as we, you know, even continue coping with the pandemic, and as we pick back up, we may actually undo all of those gains and beyond actually end up worse off by not having taken steps to to progress in the meantime this year. Do you agree with that? Are you concerned about that? I'm terribly concerned with the, with the number of EPA regulations that have been rolled back. I would really like to see an environmental study of the impact that that will all have on us. We're just, we're thinking short term right now and it's terrifying. 
What about for your business specifically? Is there a, a piece of legislation that would help you grow that say it was included as part of an economic stimulus that would really be beneficial to you? Maybe it was a kind of clean cities program or something like that. Is there a program along those lines that would be helpful to you? The programs that have been helpful to us are those that have a percentage requirement for small or female owned business. Those allow us to participate in um, RFQs that we would otherwise be excluded from. So that has been extremely beneficial and I'm grateful for those. But it seems that all the responsibility now is placed upon the city for requirements um, related to efficiency. And I'd like to see that expanded. It just seems like too much burden on the cities who've actually lost so much due to COVID-19. Do you have a lower staff number now as a result of the pandemic? Did you have to lay people off or were you able to maintain your, your staff? We did have to furlough several of our staff members because a lot of the business that we do is for local governments. And when those contracts were put on hold, we had to let go of some individuals. Fortunately, we've been able to pivot the services that we provide and now we're able to take our expertise in air quality and, and move toward infectious disease control from a facility standpoint. As a result, we've hired back those people and even been able to hire a couple of additional new staff members. Finding opportunity amid the, the crisis by pivoting, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I, my level of urgency has never been higher. I, I feel so much pressure and so much desire to maintain this business because I see so many other businesses falling along the wayside, so many restaurants and hotels and other services. And I want nothing more than to maintain my company, our individuals. We're a family. We call ourselves the Eco Preserve family and, and we try to stick together. So I guess when you think about the prospects going forward, we are still in the middle of a pandemic, but are you optimistic that, that business will not only get back to where it was, but could grow further beyond where you were coming out of this pandemic? Or is that kind of hard to envision right now? I know you're already doing well, but do you feel like the momentum is there for this to continue? I feel like we're on very shaky grounds right now. I don't know whether we can continue. We're doing everything possible to maintain momentum, um, but I don't know if it can continue. And we'll just continue to work in that direction. My name is Benny Hayden. Name of the company is Marketing for Green LLC. So my company is uh, involved in project development, community project development that involves solar. And uh, since starting the company, I always viewed sustainability in general, you know, as a way to improve economic conditions in low-income communities. And so you know, ever since starting the company, I've always thought about, you know, how can we make this happen? So that's pretty much the sector of the economy I've been focused, focused with. And so I'm, you know, think that going forward, you know, we have an opportunity to really help our communities in terms of creating jobs and again, close loop, close loop economic activity, which is really needed in disadvantaged communities. Can you tell me how COVID-19 has affected your business? Has it been an issue for you in, in any way? Have you had to issue layoffs or anything along those lines? What, is, what has been the impact? 
Yeah, actually, a lot of my work involves public-private partnerships. And so, for example, we had a project in the works with uh, a number of historically black colleges. Uh, this project had been in the works for a period of maybe three years. So this project was actually um, you know, ready to go uh, this year, early part of this year. And of course, it's been pushed back you know, to next year. The uh, another project I also have that was research related, a uh, project funded by the Department of Energy that was also pushed back uh, to, to next year. However, my philosophy as an entrepreneur is not to have all your eggs in one basket. So I am uh, really excited about a project that I currently am working to implement, which involves uh, putting a solar factory, a solar panel factory in Detroit, Michigan. Wow, manufacturing in America of solar, which I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of companies get their solar panels from China still and other countries. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? How are you bringing those jobs to Detroit? Yeah, well, so again, this uh, lines very well with my business model. And for example, I, I read a report that I recall, they said that, you know, the U.S. in general, we spend like maybe $19 billion dollars on solar panels and, and all that money flows out of the country overseas. So me being involved with another Department of Energy program referred to as the American Made Challenge, I was able to connect with another uh, network member, California Home Equity Retrofit Program. And so we uh, crossed paths and I was very intrigued with their, you know, two things. Their business model is nonprofit which means that all of the profits generated stayed local. That's very, very important because if, you know, say that your technology is successful, if you're operating as a for-profit, then you run the risk of being able to take, you know, be taken over, say, by a hostile organization or, or hostile, who I refer to as hostile takeover. Someone comes in and buy out, you know, those, those shareholders. And what you wind up happening, happening when is, is this, what we similarly find ourselves in right now, you know, a lot of big box retailers come in you know, and as a result, they flood the, they flood the market and the local entity is kind of like priced out. And, and again, you're right back to where you started in terms of, you know, the profits again flowing out of the community. So the nonprofit business model was important. The other uh, important um, thing for me was the technology is referred to as ideal, ideal PV. And this technology prevents hotspots. So those were the two really key things, you know, the innovative technology and the opportunity again to create this nonprofit business model, you know, which meant that you're able to keep the profits local in the community. And so that project's moving ahead. You're able to make this manufacturing hub happen in Michigan? This all has come together within the uh, past few months. And we've had really one promising meeting with, um, when I say we're referring to CHIRP, which, which is my partner, you know, we've had, um, we have had really one good meeting with the city of Detroit, uh, someone who is advisor to Mayor uh, Mike Duggan. And we just set up today with uh, Detroit Economic Growth Corporation. And so even though my, you know, I currently based out of Atlanta, I'm well aware that, you know, Detroit Economic Growth Corporation is behind a lot of my major projects in the city, you know, whether it's stadiums, casinos, you name it. So that's a really good development for us. 
So you're based in Georgia, in Atlanta, Georgia. How would you describe the clean energy economy there? We're getting perspectives from across the country. Would you say that it's a, a growing market? Is the public understanding of the opportunity there? And, and what kind of support do you get from your policymakers, if, if any? Well, that's, that's a really good question. You know, I noticed the differences right away in moving here. Like, for example, Michigan has a renewable portfolio standard, you know, which the state of Georgia does not. And so, unfortunately, you know, given that, you know, as you know, climate has been turned into a political, you know, somewhat of a political football, you know, I, I have not seen the level of policy here, say, for example, for community solar or policies that are geared toward, again, low-income communities, as you do in places like D.C., Baltimore, or even Michigan as of late. So, uh, however, the development of solar has really taken root here with respect to, you know, utility-scale solar and solar farms because the business community, because the technology in solar has, has come so far so fast, it makes a lot of economic sense for you know, uh, farmers and things of this sort to set up these solar farms on their property because it just makes a lot of economic sense for them to do so. So I hope that you know, as things go forward, you know, Georgia will you know, eventually you know, become more aggressive with respect to the policy side. But again, you have to be flexible. And as an entrepreneur, I have to be flexible and, and you know, be willing to go and adapt to where the business opportunities currently are. If you could speak directly to your you know, state lawmakers or to the lawmakers at the federal level, what would you want them to do in crafting an economic recovery from the pandemic? Would you want them to include much more spending for clean energy? And if so, what would that look like? Would it just be more spending or are there more targeted programs you'd like to see? I would like to see emphasis on manufacturing. And I think that's really critical. And so we need programs to, to help manufacturing in this country. It's obvious with, with COVID exposed, the fact that we're so vulnerable as a country, you know, our business models, you know, again, all the profits flow overseas. And so I would like to see, definitely see more policies geared toward, um, you know, manufacturing. We also have to think about in, in a lot of urban areas is that a lot of people are, have barriers getting into the job market because of, because of, uh, you know, maybe some type of criminal background uh, or just maybe have some sort of disability, you know, veterans, homelessness. So we need policy again to address this segment of the population. You know, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this project in Detroit is because of, you know, the high poverty rate and the high unemployment rate. And I've always viewed uh, clean energy as a way of addressing, you know, some of these issues. And so policy that addresses all these issues that is more or less what I refer to connected or uh, holistic, I think that's the type of policy making we need going forward. There is more attention these days, at least in the media, toward you know racial injustices and inequities in our society. Do you feel like that message is landing and it's being you know brought into the energy world in a meaningful way? Or are we just barely getting into that dialogue? Do you think? I think it's you know it remains to be seen how that develops. You know, I'll be you know, and being very honest with you, and is that that's one of the things that's just, that attracted me to the green economy is I viewed it as a way of you know being more diverse because we think about sustainability, you know, social, environmental, and profits. 
but unfortunately it hasn't really developed like that. And I think it's because there's been a lot of diversity at the corporate level and that needs to change. And in light of, uh, you know, some of these recent protests, there's been a lot of, I guess, um, you know, talk, but we need to see, you know, money behind this. And we need, we need to see corporate leaders, quite frankly, just step up. Hi, Bernadette. Thank you for speaking with me. So to kick things off here, can you just start by telling me a little bit more about your company? The company is uh, C.W. Cook Geothermal, and we do geothermal drilling, geothermal well fields. And we are based in Pennsylvania. We work in um, all throughout Pennsylvania, New York, and Delaware. And uh, the company is actually owned by my son, and my other son works in this, and, and our grandson works in this. So it's very much a family business. And uh, I've been at this for, I guess, about 12 years now. Uh, but our, we started out with the intention of trying to go green in, in our part of the world. Geothermal heating and cooling system in the home will cut down on the cost of your energy and will also do a lot for the environment. And that was the reason for starting this business in the first place. So how was your business affected by the pandemic, if at all? Did you see a decline? Did it affect your staff? How would you describe what that experience has been? It was, it was very difficult because it came right on the heels of January, February, and March, which is the most difficult time for a geothermal drilling company in the Northeast. And uh, the thing that was most helpful to us is we were eligible for one of the loans. We're still actually using that loan for payroll um, as, we're, as we're getting everything caught up again to where we were previously. And business does seem to be coming back. What are the prospects for geothermal in Pennsylvania, in your state? People may think of it as a fracking state or a gas state, but is it also a geothermal state? How would you describe that? It, it is growing. It's really interesting. We haven't done any serious studies on this, but uh, in most cases, people that are buying geothermal are, number one, this is not their country of origin because all the countries in Europe, have, they're, they're quite, quite comfortable with uh, geothermal and they appreciate the value of it. The other new opportunity is, uh, I would say we have a demographic of um, people in their 30s, who are certainly aware of the environment, um, environment and how it's changing. And the, the, the cost is still a problem for a lot of people. It was really helpful when we had the 30% uh, tax rebate on the whole system. And now that's been decreased to 26%. And now I expect next year it's going to go to 20% and then disappear according to the last to the last reporting on this. Since we started this, we started going to, we started going to uh, like farmer's markets, places like that, setting up a table. I wrote a brochure on what is geothermal. We go out there, all these people come, oh, what is geo? Nobody knows what it is. They just, honestly, they don't know. Uh, solar, they have a little bit better understanding of that. But probably that's because you never hear the word from any anyone on on television when they talk about renewable energy they talk about solar and they talk about wind and geothermal is the only one of the three that is not weather dependent 
can just think about it. You know, it doesn't matter if the sun's out or if the wind is blowing, geothermal is right there working for you all the time. So that, um, that I think is one of the biggest problems that we have. This is not a talking point. No one is talking about geothermal and, and either public television or regular television, whatever it is. And so I think that would help. So I guess, have you heard of the concept of a green recovery or green stimulus that a, that Congress would pass? Some Democrats have put out some ideas. There have been um, discussions with Republicans on what that may look like. Is that something that you're monitoring and that you would want? Are you more focused on tailored specific policies in the local areas where you work rather than a big federal bill that would stimulate the green economy, so to speak? We need, we need both federal and we need local support for uh, clean energy, or it's just not going to work. And I, I think it's going to be much harder now because so many people who may have been a candidate for geothermal are struggling because they've been out of work for such a long time or they've come back to work at a much uh, smaller pay than what they were getting previously. Uh, yeah, we, we have moved from uh, so many people who were unemployed to a lot of people who are underemployed. And that will really impact geothermal. Do you feel like people in Pennsylvania understand the opportunity that clean energy provides? You know, we're talking about how systems can be expensive up front, but they save money over time. But it is still new in many respects. And again, this is a state that has really grown largely on a fossil fuel. So do you think that that's understood among you know, the general public that this could be a growth opportunity growing into geothermal and other areas of the clean energy economy? Or is that a really controversial thing to say because people's livelihoods are still baked into the fossil fuel side of things? So I'm curious, do you have a thought on that? I, I, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I think, no, they don't really know what the opportunities can be for renewable energy. And there are a lot of people still hanging on to what they know. And they do not appreciate the impact of those choices. I, I don't think it's supported by the government, uh, alternative energy, green energy. I don't feel that it's supported at the federal level and at the state level. It's very sketchy. Some states are very supportive. The majority of the states are not. Do you think that should change and could change? I think that has to change before, before there's any change among the general population. Everything starts at the top. Everything starts at the top. Leadership starts at the top. Whatever the leader is doing in, in a country or in a state or even in a town, that determines what people think, what people feel about specific issues that impact them personally. You know, it's, it's, it's always, people are always looking at the impact on themselves and without having an understanding of how that's going to benefit or if it's going to cost them, it's not going to, um, it's not going to filter down into the general population. This is a political issue. Green energy is a political issue. Well, Bernadette, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's very nice talking with you. Thank you so much. Again, the voices there of clean energy business owners in several states across the U.S. 
I hope this episode shed light on where we are in crafting a clean energy recovery and what that could look like going forward. Speaking of going forward, we'll have another episode in our Relief Rescue Rebuild series with Third Way airing at the end of next month, as we do every month through the end of the year. Thank you so much for listening. While you're here, remember to hit subscribe to Political Climate so you can catch all of our episodes. That's it for now. I'm Julia Piper. Until next week.